0: Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with, m and A, real estate syndication and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G One C Group. Welcome everyone to the next episode of Dealmaker Diaries, so we have an incredible guest with us today, Mr. Kenneth Gee. So Kenneth is the founder and managing partner of KRI Partners and the KRI group of companies. He has more than 24 years of significant real estate, banking, private equity transaction and principal investing experience. Throughout his career, he has been involved in transactions valued at more than $2 billion, much of which has included the acquisition, management and financing of various multifamily real estate projects. Before forming KRI Partners, Kenneth was a tax manager with Deloitte. Some of his major clients included the Riverside Company, Key Equity Capital Partners, Blue Point Capital, Linsalata Capital Partners, the Zaramba Group, Charter One Bank, and Applied Industrial Technologies, Inc. Before his career at Deloitte, he spent several years at the National City Bank, now part of PNC Bank. He also owned and operated several certified Cessna pilot centers around the Northeast Ohio area. Kenneth is a licensed Ohio Ohio certified public accountant, a member of the multiple apartment associations and Ohio Society of Certified Public Accountants and American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. So let's give Kenneth a warm welcome to the show. Let's go. so Ken, thanks for joining us today. So glad to have you. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. How's your day going thus far? Thus far real good. Keeping busy, that's for sure. Excellent, excellent. So yeah, I wanted to jump right into things. We're excited to um, have you on and talk about your experience. So um, I think one of the things I noticed about um, you and I noticed on your, points there if someone's looking to invest in a real estate firm what are some of the most important things they should be looking at before giving this firm your money or their yeah, money yeah th-
1: that's a that's a good question and one uh, that i'm pretty passionate about because you know we we do syndicate and we have uh funds uh blind pool funds that we raise and uh, we deal with this all the time so the first thing i always want people to do is to take a minute and read the documents, right? They're not very friendly to read, but you got to read them. And what you're really looking for is you're trying to figure out what sort of term, the business terms of the fund or the investment are. So figure out, you know, how is the sponsor being paid? Um, How is it possible for the sponsor to do well and you not do well as the the investor? So I call it investor friendly terms, right? You want to make sure that those terms uh, are aligned so that everybody, if everybody does well, everybody does well together and uh, no one profits at the other's uh, expense. So that that's the first thing you wanna do, just look for an investor friendly uh, uh, situation. Now, it's all relative, right? So you wanna look at a few deals and over, over time you're gonna start seeing a lot of the same things, you know, a typical syndication terms they call it two and 20 is what they'll call it the the syndicator or fund manager will charge a two percent asset management fee and they'll get a 20 percent bonus if the if the thing does well but then there's literally probably hundreds of variations of that and all sorts of fees and things like that so you want to get a feel for that so that's the first thing that i want people to do is to actually dig into the documents a little bit and figure out what's going on the second thing i want them to do is to pay close attention to the sponsors or the, or the fund managers track record. And, you know, that's important, right? Uh, You really want to make sure that whoever you're investing with has been there, done that, and they're not kind of learning with your money, right? Mm -hmm. I I view that as kind of a dangerous thing. And you just want to be really careful with that. A great place, uh, to do that, most first of all, most sponsors should be willing to just show you their track record, but uh, you might want to check out a site, and, and I have no interest in this site, but it's verivest.com. They exist for the sole purpose of vetting sponsors like us. So, for example, we paid them a whole bunch of money uh, to really audit our entire track record, and we've been at this for over 23 years So, and 15 or 16 deals. So I had to send them an enormous amount of paper, including Bank statements, tax returns, settlement statements, the, the whole deal. So they vetted our entire track record. I think that's important because now you know not only do you see a track record and you can see how well. The, the syndicator or the fund sponsor has performed in the past. But now you know that somebody's actually looked at it, right? They've yeah. also, Verivest also does a full background check on us, so, you know, checks with the C- SEC, make sure we don't have a criminal background, all that kind of stuff. So the other thing you're looking in, for in that track record is that the types of deals that they've done, for example, if, if they've only done really small deals, and the deal they're raising money now for is a 350-unit deal in a market they've never been in, right? Well, that's going to—that that, that's not necessarily a deal killer, but you're going to want to know that and understand that, that you know come to make sure you understand how they're going to mitigate those risks. And the third thing, so we talked about investor-friendly terms, we talked about having a tr- good track record. The the last thing, and this is experience, right? It's, it kind of ties into the track record concept, but you want. Your your sponsor, your fund manager, or your syndicator to have some experience and some length of time for experience. Think about this: apartment buildings. Uh, everybody thinks of this this whole real estate investing thing as a passive activity, but it's really it's really not. An apartment building is a business. It's it's no different than. Any other business you would open up—a grocery store, a bank, or whatever—we, you know, apartment buildings have customers and expenses and employees and and risks and liabilities and financing issues and and you know the whole gamut. Everything that goes on in a business goes on in an apartment community. So what you want is you want your fund sponsor, your syndicator, to have uh, enough experience so that when they're faced with things. That nobody saw coming, like maybe a pandemic or maybe a two thousand eight uh, kind of financial crash, that they have some experience to draw on to help navigate those really difficult times. Because things are going to happen, we just don't know what's going to happen yet. And you want to make sure that the management team that's in place, that's in charge of making sure your assets are going to make money for you, has some experience to do that. So those are the kind of the three things. And I know they're really high level but they really do touch on a lot of the things that I think help to you know, put an investor in a good place
0: with respect to picking the right person to invest with. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. That's some excellent advice. And, and, and that's real helpful. That website, that VeraVest, can, so can, for the readers, can you spell out that website for them in case they sure. want to go to and check out that one?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And remember, I don't have a financial interest in VeraVest. I just think it's a super important service that they provide because this whole private money market since 2012 is growing like crazy, and they're there to, to help protect against the bad actors, which is important. So, it's V-E-R-I-V-E-S-T dot com. It's all one word, verivest.com. And you'll see some uh, They have different levels that sponsors can sign up with them. We're fully vetted, fully monitored. I mean, every time we do something, we have to send, every quarter, we send them all of our financial statements, our bank account statements, our reconciliations, everything. And they monitor everything to make sure we're doing what we said to the investors that we would do in terms of distributions and things like that. So,
0: yeah, that's excellent because, yeah, we actually get investors... That's one of the questions that we get from investors a lot is, um, do you have anything that demonstrates your track record in past deals? So, yeah, that's I mean, it'd be great to be able to send them to that site. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's vetted. OK, excellent. Yeah. And so you just mentioned, I think uh, it's important. But I wanted to ask you to unpack that a little. But you mentioned that real estate is not a passive activity. And Because mm-hmm. you hear that all the time, right? You always hear real estate is passive investing, but as we all know, it's it's not. So can you unpack that a little and expound on that?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it is possible to have real estate be a passive investment, right? You invest your money with a firm like ours, for example, right? Then you are legitimately passive. You give your money to us. It's our job to do all the work to make you the money. So it is possible to have real estate be passive. Now, the part that people don't think about think about when that money goes into to our firm now we're in charge of taking care of this passive investment right it's not passive for us so what, what i said before think about what we have to do we have to figure out how to take care of customers those would be the residents of the property we have to figure out how to attract new ones we have to figure out how to market the property we have to figure out pick a right a good location right is this is this location likely to do well over the whatever period that we're going to hold the asset we have to do strategic planning just like a business does how you know what's the business plan for the asset that we're going to buy how are we going to make money are we going to raise rents okay how do we know we're going to be able to raise rents see all that strategic planning that you think about you know the apple computer and all those big companies they go through it we go through it too just in a smaller scale with apartments we have we have maintenance challenges we have leasing people we have you know all sorts of employees and risks to mitigate. You know, we have property level risks, or you know, people slip and fall, things like that. So that—that's what I mean when you think about um, and people getting into this business. Sometimes they just think of it as passive, and then when they get in, they realize, oh my goodness, th- this feels more like a business, or more like a job than it than it does a passive investment. And Definitely. that's why most people—that's why most people should be really kind of investing with others and let them do the work. Absolutely.
0: All right, excellent. And um now I've also heard you talk about consistently making money in real estate because anyone can do it once, right? I mean, yeah. You know, I think I was telling you earlier about my first deal I was able to make 60,000, but then my next one I kind of lost my shirt because you know, I mean, yeah, you can get lucky once, but how does one do that consistently and make sure they're they're ticking the right boxes when they're going about making a career of investing in real estate?
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So it, it, think about it. It's, it kind of plays off that business concept that I talk about. So there's, there's really like four things that I'll, I'll talk about that I think are really important. There's probably 400 other things, but the biggest thing I want people to understand is you got to understand supply and demand. That's the first thing. Uh, you got to understand, and, and when I say supply and demand, we we're, we're we invest primarily right now in Northern and Central Florida. Well, think about the supply and the demand. We do BC class assets. So let me explain how in supply and demand impacts the market that we, that we go after. Everybody knows there's a lot of people moving into Florida, right? And the last count is about a thousand people a day. Maybe 25% of those people are really wealthy and about 75% of those people are just normal, ordinary people, right? So mm-hmm. we have increasing demand going into a market. That's awesome. Now the question is, what's the supply side of the equation look like? Well, they're building like crazy in Florida, right? Everybody knows that, but what are they building? They're building A-class properties, the really expensive stuff, the stuff that is designed to serve the upper tier income bracket of those people moving in. So maybe the top 25%, maybe 30 are going into those A class assets. We like B C class assets because that asset class that that level of property they can't build. They can't afford to. So that means the supply of new product meaning new new homes and new new apartments in our market is not increasing because they can't they can't build them. So we have increasing demand in a huge way and we have stable supply that's not going anywhere. Think about economics that's gonna push price all the way up automatically, right? That's sort of a bull market strategy. So you wanna understand the supply side and the demand side is the first thing that you have to understand. And you have to understand it not just at a macro level, but you gotta get down to the neighborhood level, right? Because it matters. Because if you flip that situation around and you have decreasing demand, meaning people, there are some states that now are losing people, the supply side still isn't changed, right? Cause they're probably still not building BC class assets, but the number of people who want those to live in those places is going down. That's a bad situation, right? It's gonna be really hard to make money in that situation. So I want you to first understand that. That's super important in order to figure out how you're gonna make money. Second thing I wanted people to focus on is how you're gonna create value with that asset. So every deal that we do, you know, we have a business plan that we put together. This is where it is now. This is where we think it should be. This is exactly what we think we need to do to get it there. And we're pretty comfortable that we can get it to where it needs to be, right? We have a plan for value creation. And in the uh, apartment world, value is created by increasing the net operating income of the asset, right? That's one of the reasons I like apartments is because they're valued on their ability to generate cash flow. So if we increase cash flow, the value of that asset's gonna go up. So you wanna understand how you're gonna create value. Don't just buy it and say, okay, well, it'll appreciate over time. I don't understand how, but I just know that real estate always goes up. So therefore, I will make money. You wanna be a little more aggressive and to make sure you understand how you're gonna create the value. The next thing you wanna understand is leverage. Um, there's all sorts of things to be concerned about here leverage. Number one, you don't want to over lever your, your, your property, right? You got to make sure that no matter what, you can make your, your mortgage payment. So you, you want to understand though, that leverage amplifies your returns. So if a property is throwing off a, a defined amount of cash and you paid hundred percent cash for that property, well, your return is going to be one thing. But if it's throwing off that same amount of cash, and in your investment, your equity investment, is only thirty percent of the total. Now your return on your investment is going to be quite a bit higher. In fact, a lot higher. That's using leverage to make money. You just got to be careful that you don't over leverage it, because if you do, and and uh, you know things take, uh, you know things don't pan out as you thought they would, then you're going to have a difficult time making the mortgage payment. You don't ever want to be in that situation. And then the last thing I talk about is, is cap rates people, I know people throw those that word around, but generally you want to understand the effect that cap rate has on the value of the property, right? And right now cap rates are relatively low. That means the prices of the assets are relatively high. People are worried that interest rates from this point will go up. And if they do considerably, that might drive down the value of the assets in total because now people demand um, a higher return on their money because they, they can put their money somewhere else and earn more interest, right? So when you're in this business, you want to understand that relationship so that when you do your modeling, you, you plan out uh, an exit cap rate that is reasonable and plans for some movement in interest rates that may or may not happen, but at least you'll know what happens if they do go up. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So a lot of these things, you can see there, you get into a lot of technical things here. But if you understand these things, the chances of you making money over the long run, over multiple deals, just goes up exponentially if you, if you get your hands, you
0: know, your hands around these issues. All right. Excellent. Excellent. I hope you guys are taking notes. That was some real nice info there. And also, Ken, so you mentioned... Um, the BNC properties, I like those a lot as well, because I know that's, that's the value added. And in my opinion, I think that's where our investors can get the, the best return on their capital. So um, what, what do you think are some, um, some of the steps that you must follow when you're renovating multi-family sure. property, apartment properties? Yep, yep, got it.
1: So let, let's talk about, the first part of it talks about planning. It, it's really about planning. What we do before we decide we're going to buy a property is we do a really in-depth market study. And I look at all of the properties around it. What are the prices, you know, what are the rent, what are the going rents for properties that are comparable to the property that I'm looking at. But I also look one level up at least and say, okay, if I take this property from, where it is today and make it better, I'm gonna compete in a different co- competitive set. So I'm gonna really understand what those properties look like and how much they're charging so that I can understand when I'm done, where is my property gonna stand when somebody uh, is running around trying to figure out where they're gonna live next, my property is gonna fit in the, in the pricing scheme that, so that it makes sense. And, and people want to live in our property because of the way it's priced, right? We don't, we're not trying to price it $200 above everybody else, but it's not that much nicer than everybody else's, for example. So I start with an in-depth market study. Then I figure out how much how much do I have to work with here, right? So once I know how much I can move rents, I can then figure out how much the property is going to be worth when I'm done. I know how much I'm going to pay. The difference is, and, and I know how much money I want to make then that backs me into my budget. And you're gonna wanna do um, a a budget for your renovations. Now, here's the interesting thing that most people don't uh, think about. So you're gonna do your renovation budget once when you look at the asset initially. When you tour it, you might change that around some. In fact, I'm sure you will because you'll learn more things. Say you get awarded the deal, now you're in the in the due diligence phase, well guess what, you're gonna learn even more. So we typically revise our budget again because we'll reallocate, oh, we don't need to spend it on this because this is better than we thought, but we need to spend it over here because now that we've been there and spent so much time on site, we see that it needs this instead of that. So we're constantly reevaluating our budget. We even do it again after we close, after we've been around for 30, 60, 90 days Um, Which is the next point I want to make. And this is the one that always makes everybody crazy. And that is, I tell people when you buy these deals, sit on your hands for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever it takes for you to really get a good understanding of the property. And the reason I want you to do that is because if you don't, it's very possible that you go in full speed, you spend your whole renovation budget, 35 days later, you realize, uh oh, I've got a problem here I didn't know I had. And now I have no money left to fix it. And it's just going to put you in a really bad situation. So I like people to just chill for a minute, figure out what's going on, figure out what you didn't find out during due diligence, what the seller didn't tell you. And the seller may not have even known it. So that if you need to reallocate your money after close, then you can do that. And that's perfectly okay to do that. In fact, it's really the responsible thing to do because, sometimes you know these 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 uh, budgets are made to change and you ha- they're they're dynamic things that need to be um, changed and modified as uh, as you learn new information then when we renovate we talk about using an outside in approach and that is you know just think about the jerry maguire movie is always the the way i tell people this think about jerry maguire right you have me at hello that's what we try to do <laughs> When residents come into our property, we try to get them at hello, right? We want to impress them. It's curb appeal is what everybody thinks about it. But I try to really get people to understand that this is taking your buyer, your your renter on an emotional journey as they go through the property. So we want to make sure it looks great when they drive up. We want to make sure that we show them all the wonderful amenities. Those are all, I call them outside things, right? We want to show them a great amenity package and really impress them. And then we, we follow them all the way to the unit, right? Make sure all of that looks good. And then when we open the door, our job is to not let them down inside the unit, right? I see some people do it the other way around because they think, wait a minute, the renter is living in the apartment all the time. That's what I wanna renovate. They're not living outside, so they don't care as much about the outside. But that never ever works. And the reason it doesn't is because my leasing agents can't get you to the front door if the outside doesn't impress them and it doesn't look cool and doesn't look like a place they'd like to live. So always follow an outside-in approach no matter what. And then finally, and I said this before, just continually reassess your plan and just make sure because if you're a sponsor, a fund manager, a syndicator, and you're responsible for other people's money and your own for that matter, you want to make sure that you're constantly challenging yourself about every dollar you spend and make sure that what you're doing still is going to have a significant impact on the value of the property. And if it doesn't, I would just challenge you to rethink your position on whether or not you should actually make that improvement, whatever it is that you're thinking about. So those are the five things that I uh, I, I love to see people follow when they're doing a renovation on a multifamily property.
0: Okay, excellent. Thanks so much for that. All right, Kenan, so I know throughout your career, you've been involved in over... $2 billion in transactions. So I wanted to try to get a feel for your mindset and take you through the um, lightning round. Sure. All right. So just a softball for the first one on um, what book or books have greatly influenced your life.
1: Yeah, there there's actually a lot of them. Probably the first one. Uh, I mean, I've read uh, the Stephen Covey book, uh, seven habits of highly effective people. That's always had a big impact on my, on me. Um, Robert Kiyosaki's had a big impact on me. The, the whole concept of you know, not trading time for money, but uh, mm-hmm. creating passive income, which is what we're doing here, right, for, for our right. investors. So I would say let's start with those two. There's probably at least a dozen others that have had a huge impact. Um, and probably the most recent one that I've read is uh, Grant Cardone's 10X uh, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, books. I mean, that, you know, that's kind of how I approach life. Um, and I would encourage everybody to do the same thing. So that 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 book, that, that'd probably be a third
0: one that I would mention, but there's plenty more. Okay, sweet. And how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later?
1: Yeah, that I would say, you know, we've been at this for a really long time. And uh, prior to this, I was a CPA and a commercial lender. So, you know, I've had different kinds of failures over my lifetime. And what I've really learned, everybody says, oh, you know, failures aren't bad. You learn from them and you do. I mean, you want to try to avoid them whenever possible, but you know, every time that something didn't go the way I wanted it to, or, you know, I, I guess you you could call it a failure. um, I I always take a minute. The first thing I do is gather myself and realize this is just a problem that has to be solved, right? That's all this Mm -hmm. is. It's not a failure just a problem that we gotta figure out. Let's keep our heads, let's figure out what to do next. And then we, we, we go forward, but then I always try to look back and say, okay, why did this happen? Legitimately, why, whatever it is happened, why did it happen? What should I, or could I have done or seen to see it coming? and uh, And then learn from that so that I can be smarter. Remember earlier, I talked about the experience thing of senior management. Of taking care of these properties and these investments. That's exactly what I mean, right? I've learned a lot from making a lot of mistakes over my lifetime. And, you know, I like to be able to uh, use that to get better so that I reduce the number of failures I have
0: going forward. Yeah. And I think that's key, what you said. I think, yeah, with any business, no matter what it is, it's always just a series of problems, right? They're always coming at you. And your ability to keep a cool head and solve those problems is going to, that's what's going to make you successful or not successful, I think. Because no matter what, you're going to continue to have problems, right? It's always going to be something new coming down the pike.
1: You will. You know, you're exactly right. And, and the people around you and the people that make up your organization are looking at you, looking to you for that leadership. And if you're losing
0: your mind, that's not a good thing. So. All right. Excellent. And Ken, if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Ooh, wow, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, it could be um, a slogan, phrase, anything. What would it say? Yeah, here's what I,
1: I, I'm going to I'm going to keep this in the professional sense. And that is uh, you are where you are because you choose to be there. Um, that's a little wordy for a billboard, but, um, it's a belief that I've had forever. And I didn't understand what it meant until I got out of my own rent, you know, have my own company. I am mean, in charge of building, you know, building our organization to, to where it is today and where it's going to be tomorrow. And what I've learned is the number one thing that has limited me and probably limits a lot of people is just how you think of yourself and where you think you're at. And it, it's almost like if you pl- act the part, it, it actually starts to happen. Most people don't go that next step because they just they just can't imagine them being in that next, whatever, that m- next ring up in terms of rung up in terms of success or what have you, right? They just couldn't imagine like flying first class on an airplane, right? Mm-hmm. Or they couldn't imagine having their own boat or, you know, having their own airplane or things like that. Right. They just, they just can't even fathom it. And because of that, I think a lot more, a lot of people don't get to where they could be because they're, they haven't, they they haven't been able to train their mind to, to truly believe that they can get there. Does that make sense? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Got to be able to believe in yourself for sure. Okay, and Ken, in the in the last few years, what new behavior, belief, or habit has most changed your life?
1: What new habit? What? Well, you know, just what I just talked about. I think probably has had the biggest impact. Um, you know, I think a lot of people will tell you once people figure out what I just described in terms of that, you know, why you are where you are because you choose to be there. Once you figure that out. There's a really, really high potential for change, and that's probably the biggest thing uh, that has helped uh, me um, continue to grow our company and to become much more successful. The other thing that I would say is this: this realization now that we've been at this, I've been doing this for 23, 24 years, and in the beginning, uh, somebody helped me. Right? They gave me advice. They huh. The, helped me, uh, you know, sort of gave me a lending hand, right, if so to speak. And so, uh, you know, we've, you know, I personally have made an, a, a really big effort to do that more and more now, because it's it's actually fun, it's actually super rewarding to see someone that you know started out and really didn't understand anything about this business, and over a period of time, I'm able to help them become successful and to watch them. When they do turn that corner and they do have those successes, it's uh, not 100% me, but you know, I got to play a part in it and watch it and, and help shape it. So that's really rewarding to me. I, uh, uh, I've enjoyed that.
0: Okay, very good. And what are some bad recommendations you hear in your day-to-day for people new to syndications and investing in real estate? In multifamily real estate,
1: yeah. So, when you say bad recommendations, do you mean for for uh, investors or for the people, the, the syndicators and the sponsors? Yeah, for investors. For investors, yeah. So, bad recommendations. Um, I don't know that it's a recommendation, but one of the concerns that I've always had is when I see a lot of people investing with other people who just don't they don't have the experience yet, and I would say just be careful with that. Um, it's not that the, everybody's got to start somewhere, right? But you just want to do it carefully and not put too much of your, or your capital at risk with somebody who hasn't cut their teeth yet, so to speak. So that, that, that's all. I mean, I, I just want to see um, everybody be successful because if, if your first deal doesn't work, you're, you're not coming back. And you, you really don't want to see that because there's so much money to be made in this business for everyone, right? For the syndicator, the investor, for everybody, that you know, you'd hate to see someone turn away from a legitimate, proven, long-term, you know, wealth-building process because the first one didn't go well. And I've seen it happen, and it's it, it's it's a bummer when it does because you know that person's not coming back. And uh, you know, had they made a couple different decisions, maybe they
0: would uh, that the result would have been different. Definitely. Um. Okay. Thanks for that. All right. And just a couple of more. So um, in the last few years, what have you become better at saying no to?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So what I've, over, over the last few years, um, what I've really focused on with our clients and our investors is really making sure that the relationship that we're about to enter into or that we're contemplating, whether it be an investor, you know, investing in our fund, whether it be a client who wants to hire us for third party management, I really have come to take a really close look at both parties. Is it a good match? Does Are both parties, do they fit, right? Does it fit together? And does it make sense in terms of both parties are able to get together, have this marriage, so to speak, and uh, and get what they need out of it, and, and it's a win-win for everybody. I've really come to focus on that. So what it what ends up happening then is I'll say no to some relationships that uh, you know my experience has told me this isn't this. There is a high potential here for the relationship to not work out. And then no one wins, right? So we went, mm-hmm. we go from a win-win to a lose-lose. And that's the worst possible scenario of all. So that's probably the biggest thing. And, you know, I, I try to make sure that it's obvious to everybody so that the, the decision's always mutual, because that's important. But we all, you know, that that's probably the biggest thing I've, I've said no to. And I think it, it, it served us well, I think.
0: Yeah, that, that's a crucial one as well. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah, once you get into those relationships and they aren't working out, working out, you've not only has everyone lost, but you've wasted an, an incredible amount of time that you could have invested elsewhere. So yeah, that's crucial. Sure. Okay, and last one, which is probably the one you're going to have to dig the most deep on, but <laughs> okay, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? What important
1: truth? do most people not agree with me on? Yes. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, And I'm going to struggle a little bit, but I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot. The number one thing that I think people generally, I'll call it resist. I don't know that they necessarily disagree with me, but we're, uh, I'm a pretty detail oriented person. And I think that in, in this business and in any business for that matter and, and just about anything in your life, the, the devil is always in the details. That means you need to dig in and really roll up your sleeves and understand the situation, whatever it is, right? Say it's a rent study, right? Well, don't just take the broker's rent survey and, and do it, right? So the disagreement comes when I really want people to dig in and understand why the rents are going to be able to increase. Tell me why, right? Show me why do that hard work. And what I find sometimes is some resistance to do that because people just, you know, it's a lot of work to figure this out. Right. Hmm, But my, my message is that, especially if you're a syndicator fund manager, or, you know, you're, you're talking to investors and clients, if you've done the really hard work to understand why the numbers are what they are, and in our business, I can prove out almost every single number in our P&L in some way, shape, or form as, on, on a projected t- basis. So if I can do that, and I understand how those numbers are what they are, when I talk to an investor, when I talk to a lender, when I talk to anybody, I've got an enormous amount of confidence because I know what these numbers are, and I know why they are what they are. But the biggest resistance I get, and you call it a truth, uh, but that is you have to do this hard work and understand the business. If you do, you can make money over the long run. You're in a much better position because if you don't choose to do that work, somebody has to do that work. And if you think someone else is really digging in and doing that for you, you have to be really, really careful with that assumption because most of the time they're not, and you'll, you're you're the one that's going to end up paying the price for that. So it's this it's this dive into the details thing is the number one thing that people resist the most when I talk to them about it. But if they do it, and after they do it, you know it, it makes sense to them. Then does that does that help you? Does that makes absolutely
0: absolutely. That's some great morsels there. Thank you so much. All right, Ken. So, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. This has been great. And um, real quick, before we hop off, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, collaborate or do business with you, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you?
1: Yeah, great question. Thanks for, for giving me the opportunity. So I wrote a book uh, that the easiest way for people to reach me, go to KRIpartners.com slash ebook. That's KRIpartners.com slash ebook. I wrote a book called Multifamily Real Estate's a Total Game Changer. It's a short book, but it looks at two things. And the reason I want people to look at this is because everybody that's listening to your podcast, they're trying to figure out. They know there's a ton of money here in real estate. They're just trying to figure out how they get their piece. So I take the I take them through this process of figuring out how does real estate fit in their life? Should they buy a single, a double? Can they buy an apartment complex? Maybe they should passively invest, right? So I help them understand that and what kind of real estate to invest in. Then, assuming that you should be passive, which most people should be because they have real good day jobs that I don't recommend they give up, at least not right away. Now they have to figure out how to vet sponsors. So I give them a lot of insight in this book about how sponsors work, how syndicators operate, what matters to them, how you can spot a good one versus a not so good one and how you can really understand and what questions to ask. So that ebook is probably the best way to get to me and, and to our company. It's kripartners.com slash ebook. You can also just email me if you want, but you know, the, the ebook's a, a decent read and uh, that kind of brings you into our 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 uh, realm of, you know, we, I've done a lot of writing on our website with blogs and things like that, that'll, that'll help educate people. So this is this is a good way to get started. Get you on our list. Um, but if you just want to reach out to me directly, just K G E E at KRIPartners.com. You can email me and I'll I'll get right back to you. So
0: all right, sweet, sweet. And again, thanks so much, Ken, for coming on. Um, I'll definitely be reaching out and talking to you again soon. But I, to, I really appreciate appreciated this and enjoyed having you on. You have a great well, day. All right. You just, thank you. You as well. All right, thanks. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.